I see the evidence of it, and I see that, that things are happening, and things have been happening, that we have had the joy and the privilege of being salt and light and giving glory to God, that lives have been changed, that uh, people have heard the gospel and responded to it, or they've just at least heard it, and it's exciting. The lighthouse that you see here, this is a new one for me. This is the Ponce de Leon Inlet Lighthouse. It's the tallest lighthouse in Florida. And I realized after going to this lighthouse, which wasn't far from where we were staying, that um, I have now climbed the tallest lighthouse in Oregon, which really wasn't that much. It was 93 feet, 114 steps. This one was 175 feet, and it was 213 steps. Now, I was also about 15 years younger when I climbed the Oregon Lighthouse, and at least that many pounds lighter. And so you get into the Ponce de Leon Lighthouse, and you have this spiral staircase that goes all the way to the top. My family was already way ahead of me, and I, I kept stopping. Not stopping because I had to, but because I was courteous and was letting other people come down the steps, and I was happy to yield to them as I went up. About halfway up, with my knees aching and my legs sore and burning, because, you know, I'd been in the ocean all week. I mean, that's why I was already worn out, right? It had nothing to do with the 213 steps. But you turn around one of these landings, and they have little signs along the way to tell you the history. And they have one that says, this is where one of the lighthouse keepers died. Halfway up these steps. That Joseph B. Davis uh, was climbing these steps and suddenly suffered heart failure and died. And the only reason they found him is because they noticed the light didn't come on, so the assistant light keeper had to go and bring him down. And I thought, I'm going to be just like Joseph B. Davis, and they'll leave a marker here for me. I thought, surely you could come up with a little more encouraging word halfway up. You know, save that for up at the top or something like that, and... Uh, you know, then at least you can say, well, I did more than Davis, you know, now I just got to get down from here. I was excited to see when you get to the top of this thing that it's not just a test of your physical fitness. That when you get to the top, there actually is a light there and it's rotating and it's working. And then you read about it on the, on, on the, on the marker that's up at the top and it says, this lighthouse is a functioning lighthouse it has been in one form or another since 1887, and the U.S. Coast Guard has approved it as a private aid to navigation. And you feel good about that because you think, good, this thing is doing its job. This thing isn't just here to look pretty. It's doing its job. It may not be, you know, maybe we don't need it in a world of GPS or whatever they use in buoys and beacons and everything else, but this thing is doing its job. It's fulfilling its purpose. And when you think about that light standing tall and shining brightly, you can't help but think of Jesus' word in the Sermon on the Mount about light. 
Jesus has a word about light that sounds a lot like a lighthouse providing aid to navigation in a dark world. And you have to understand that when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel gives us five sermons of Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those. And the Sermon on the Mount is a declaration. It is a bold proclamation to His disciples and to anyone who hears it. He he wants to announce the nature of His disciples. He wants them to understand it. He's saying that the era of fussy, anxious, chin-scratching type of being religious and pondering things and worrying about getting it all right, He says that's over. That's not how you're going to do things in the kingdom of God. That's not how you're going to do things if you're one of my disciples. He's saying that in our quest to be righteous, it's not just theory or legal opinion. It isn't a matter of staying within certain boundaries or using the correct terminology. It's not just a matter of structuring the procedures to be ultra-correct with the exact parsing of the words. Instead, Jesus says that our righteousness has to go beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees. But what does he mean? Give your attention to this portion of Jesus' sermon. Starting in verse 13 of Matthew 5, Jesus says to his disciples, and I want you to hear this as being preached to you from our Lord. You, all of you, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? Will it be? No, it'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You, all of you, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and you teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that was probably a stunning word to his disciples, and if we really understand what he's saying there, it should be a stunning word to us as well. How do you out-Pharisee a Pharisee? No one was more fussy and more concerned about understanding perfectly the, the Word of God and following out in the utmost detail. A Pharisee would go overboard to play it safe religiously. To get it right. And that was meant to show others that God's word is serious. Now, if you've grown up with any of that anxiety yourself, you may be wondering, how do we outdo those Pharisees? Because they have a whole institution devoted to this. 
They have thousands of years of tradition. And even in their debates, they are still after the same thing. But Jesus says, you've got to do better than them? You've got to surpass the experts? Yeah. And the way we do that is to not only accept this as God's Word, but to believe it, trust it, and live it out. That's what it means to surpass the the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Notice that Jesus in this Word says, you are salt, you are light. He doesn't say, I want you to be bright and salty. He doesn't say, you should be like salt. Oh, you should be like light. And then we all get to sit around and say, you know, what does that mean to be like light? Well, it means I need to be a little shiny. How many lumens do I need to broadcast, Jesus? I mean, exactly how shiny do we need to be? Is that an LED light? Is that an incandescent? I mean, what exactly is it? And you can hear us over the ages having these kind of debates, can't you? You know, does that include all light or just some? You know, does that include reflected light? I mean, what exactly kind of light are we saying? Jesus cuts through all that and he says, look, you're salt, you're light, you are salt light. In other words, this is your nature. As my disciple, you're the salt in a decaying world. You are the preservative and the flavor in a decaying, flavorless world. As my disciple, you are light in darkness. Don't complain about the darkness. Don't grump and moan about the darkness. Be the light. Just be the light. The light doesn't worry about darkness. Darkness goes away when the light shines. But we spend so much of our time complaining about the decay and darkness instead of focusing on simply being salt and light. You can put a little bit of salt on the most flavorless food and you'll taste it. You'll notice it. Yeah, when did they start putting sea salt in chocolate? Does anybody really know? Have you noticed this? I thought chocolate was just chocolate. And now it seems like we live in such a desperate world that you've got to add everything to chocolate. Hey, here's chili pepper. We'll put it in chocolate. You know. Who is making these decisions after all? But somebody decided we needed to put sea salt in chocolate, and I thought, no way, you're not going to taste it. Nothing tastes better than chocolate. Why do you need salt on your chocolate? You don't need salt on your chocolate. Lo and behold, I tried some, and guess what? You can taste the salt. You can actually taste the salt in the chocolate. Not sure what I think about it, but it's there. We just have to be the salt and light that Jesus says we are, and he explains that to us. But watch out, because it is tempting to adopt the righteousness of the Pharisees. It really is. We view the Pharisees as sort of the uh, villains in stovepipe hats, you know, with the handlebar mustache, and here they come to give Jesus a bad day. They're rather like VBS villains, Uh, you know, but they're not. These are people who are looked upon as the kind of people who make the world better. The kind of people who are striving to do what is right. But the problem with it is it's all on the surface. When you read Jesus' other sermon in Matthew 23, you'll see him diagnose the problem 
of the Pharisee type of righteousness. And you can read that on your own as a companion to this. That, those are the things to watch out for in Matthew 23 where he issues uh, woes to scribes and Pharisees. But the temptation to follow that kind of righteousness, and again, you, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it our righteousness. You can call it a better in righteousness, an enlightened righteousness. In fact, you can apply it to anything. You can apply it to politics, philosophy, whatever. But the temptation of it is it gives us a sense of control, that all we have to do are these things, these three things, these five things, these 12 things, whatever it is. If we do these things, then we're in control. It gives us a sense of confidence. We are right. We know the truth. We have this. They don't. We're right. They're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. I have confidence. I'm getting it right. It gives us even a sense of community. We're the people who do this. Those are the people who do that. It's us and them. They are not like us. Why? Because they do not do what we do. And we do not do what they do. Why? Because they are wrong and we are right. The righteousness of the Pharisees is tempting because it gives us all of these things and yet it's just regulations and it's formality. And the problem with it is it never goes deeper than the surface. It never becomes our nature because it's based on ourself, our perception of ourself, how others perceive us, and it's never about God. You're saying, we don't ever do that, do we? Have you ever heard the argument, you know, there's, this is probably okay to do, but we better not because we don't, we don't want to give anybody the wrong idea and we have to be concerned about what others think. I mean, that's been an argument. That's been an argument. Now, I understand the idea of not doing something questionable, you as an individual, because maybe you do have freedom to do that, but you're going to you're going to curb your freedom. You're going to roll back your freedom for the sake of others. That's a different thing entirely. That's not about self-perception. That's about discipline. That's about us being disciples and doing something for the benefit of others. You can read about that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I'm talking about the mere concern about how we are perceived. That is always a concern that only lasts on the surface if we are simply concerned to be salt and light if we are concerned to be like Jesus then we don't need to bother with what others say so wait preacher you're saying that if we act like Jesus everybody will always say good things about us I didn't say that Jesus himself said what am I going to do with this fickle generation John the Baptist shows up he's dressed like a caveman He's been eating bugs and honey. Here he comes, and you all say, oh, he's got a demon. Okay, well, let's change up the appearance. Son of man shows up. He's got his hair combed. He's dressed nice. You say, he's a glutton and a drunkard. If people are going to be fickle and focused only on the outward appearance, then that's the way it's going to be. If we strive to please God and live out our salt and light nature, then those who need to see it will see it. And those who won't, well, they're, they're blinded to the truth for now. But we'll continue to do the right thing. Understand that this is how the righteousness of the kingdom surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. 
We're either being sincere and consistent with who we are and who Jesus is, or we're simply into this for our own sense of self and our own persona and our own perception in the world. Paul shows us how this can get applied to many things. Paul was a Pharisee. He understood the problem of the empty righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And yet, remember, he was so dedicated because it gave him a sense of confidence that he was right. It gave him a sense of uh, community that he had to protect his people. And if that meant arresting and maybe executing these false believers claiming to follow a man who was crucified, then so be it. He would protect his community. It gave him a sense of control until he met the one that he was persecuting, the living Jesus Christ. And at that point, he learned about this other righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom, the true righteousness of the kingdom. And from then on, Paul was salt and light. So you can understand how upset he was when he went, uh, heard about one of the churches that he had uh, been with, the, the church in Colossae. And he had heard that people had brought in these fussy regulations and rules and telling them that, hey, if you do more of this, you'll be more spiritual than everybody else. It may have even been good things. If you pray harder, if you pray at 3 a.m. in the morning, if you you deny yourself food for weeks on end, you will be more righteous than others. If you do some of this and not some of that, then you will be more righteous than others. You will be the best in the kingdom. You will be a spiritual athlete. And Paul says, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's the kind of stuff we've been freed from in the kingdom. Notice what he says here to the Colossians. He said, you have died with Christ and he set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world such as don't handle that, don't taste that, don't touch that? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Paul is warning them about an external righteousness That even well-intentioned, they may be throwing themselves into it to try to appear more righteous. They may even think that's the path to doing better. He says the problem is it's going to be a waste of your time and it's focused on things that are not going to make it past this life. Be wary of that. Again, you can go back to Matthew chapter 23 and you can see Jesus saying things about this to the Pharisees where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you you give a tenth of the spices out of your spice rack. He says, nothing wrong with that. But you've neglected the weightier matters like love and justice and mercy. You should do one without neglecting the other. This is Paul's message to the Colossians. He says, look, you can get all caught up in these rules and regulations, which are really just human teachings, but understand, some of those may even be good. But that's not the transforming teaching of Jesus Christ. 
Because the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ provides help in conquering the sinful desires of our heart. It's changing. It's transforming. It makes us light. It makes us salt. My message to you is one that that has been my message as long as I've ever preached this sermon. And it's the message that I believe we are taking to heart. It's something that I see this congregation growing in as we take Jesus more and more at His Word. It's this message that we are salt and light, and it's not just about the externals. I've taken the title, I I need to give credit to Donna Fargo. Some of you don't know who that is. That's all right. Some of you, you used to watch Hee Haw because it was the only thing on TV. So you do know who Donna Fargo is. But she sings this song, and it's, it's really clever, and it fits with the sermon. You can't be a beacon if your light don't shine. That's bad grammar, but it's still true. And I think it has to go that way for the song. It works on hee-haw, trust me. You can have the external form of a beacon. You can have the external form of a lighthouse. But without a light, you don't shine. This is the lighthouse that got me started on this lesson years ago. We didn't live very far from it. This is the tallest lighthouse in Texas. I've never climbed it because it's closed to the public. Looks like a lighthouse, doesn't it? Stands tall like a lighthouse. It has the lantern house on the top, has the spiral staircase. I mean, anybody could see that on a picture and they'd say it's a lighthouse. But I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to invite the kids to answer. Kids, there's one thing that this lighthouse is missing that really makes it a lighthouse. Kids, can you tell me what that might be? Exactly, the light. How can you be a lighthouse if you have no light? Hey, I got an update on this. I just found out that they are trying to raise funds to restore that and get a light in that lighthouse. Now, wouldn't that be nice? You're not going to be a private aid to navigation without a light. You're not going to be a lighthouse without a light. Church, we can play little church games and we can act like we're God's people because we go through the motions and we run around like little mice in a maze and we're going to expect to get treats and goodies. But that's not why we do it. We gather together, we come to His supper table because we know we need it. Because we know that our nature is sinful by default. But we also know that we've been created in the image of God. And He leads us and transforms us to be salt and light. We believe that things are possible that aren't possible by the world's rules. We believe that real life change is possible. And some of us are experiencing that and sharing that with one another. And when you ask us, what's the secret? What rules did you follow? What did you do? We say, we didn't follow any rules. We just followed the Lord. We just followed a man who's also the Son of God. That's the secret. Your salt, your light, let's shine the light and be the lighthouse for western Arkansas. Would you pray with me? Father... It is our desire to glorify you. And in glorifying you, we need you to fuel the light in us. 
We need your transforming power that makes us salt and light. Father, for every one of us that's been baptized into Jesus Christ, we pray that we will live out His life. For those of us who haven't been baptized yet, but we're thinking about it, I pray that Your Spirit will surround them and that You will be with others who will teach them and encourage them as they think about what this means. That the first step in discipleship is a watery step. It's a death to self and all of that temptation, even to be self-righteous. And it's a new birth in a life that serves you. Father, we need you to sustain us as we come around your supper table. And we realize that in all of this, we don't do this alone. That we may just be one candle. But together we are an incredible beacon for your glory, for your namesake, for the sake of a world that you love, even though it is decaying and in the dark. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.